I want to make one thing perfectly clear. This show is not about lumberjacks. My name is Christopher Grunland, and every month I share a story. Sometimes the stories contain truths, but most of the time they're made up. Sometimes the stories are funny, other times they're serious. But you have my word about one thing. I will never, ever share a story about lumberjacks. This time, in honor of one year of Not About Lumberjacks, I keep with tradition and refuse to tell a story about lumberjacks. When Eric has a minor heart attack and is forced to take some forced time off of work, he finally reads a book left to him by his father much earlier in life. What he finds hidden among the pages changes him forever. All right, let's get to work. The Art of the Lumberjack I was four years old when my father put the bad end of a Mossberg 500 shotgun into his mouth and pulled the trigger. My mother always told me I was better off without him, that he was a youthful mistake whose only purpose was contributing to my existence. Not that my presence in her life ever seemed to bring her much joy. Yes, my mother is a bitch. There's no nice way of getting around it. She was made for her job as CEO of Barnthorn Holdings. I'm not so sure she even likes me much as an adult, although my dedication to work has been brought up as a point of pride for her at family holiday gatherings she sometimes attends. I used to be that director at the office you hate. In early, leaving late. My saving grace is that I wasn't a complete asshole on top of somebody with a compulsion to turn work into life. While I didn't expect those below me to start as early and leave as late as I did, Most of them were there when I came in and left after I was gone. It trickled down to the managers beneath me and all the people beneath them. Who was I to tell them to stop? Which brings me to the heart attack that wasn't a heart attack. At least not in the sense of pain in my left arm and chest-clutching agony as I doubled over and fell to the ground. The elevator was out in the parking garage and I walked up two floors. I couldn't stop sweating as pins and needles danced across my sternum. My admin, Marley, saw me and she told me to go to the emergency room. I didn't, though. I went home and tried to fart. I knew people who went into the ER for the same kind of thing and it all passed by in a puff. The next day at work, Marley asked me how things in the emergency room went the night before, right as Suzanne Jennings from HR was dropping off a personality profile for a prospective manager over technical publications. She overheard Marley mention the ER, and she asked me what happened. Nothing. I wasn't feeling well yesterday, I said. But I'm fine today. I think he had a minor heart attack, Marley said. I looked at Suzanne. I didn't have a heart attack. But it turns out I technically did. At least enough of a heart attack that HR insisted I immediately go to the emergency room, where they hooked me up to an EKG and spotted a myocardial infarction. That led to a quick turnaround on an angioplasty and forced bed rest for a few days. Being the kind of guy who didn't care that I lost weeks of vacation time never taken each year, the thought of rest and nothing else felt like the kind of stress that would bring about a second minor heart attack maybe even a major one. Marley took my laptop and removed work email from my phone. 
Because I had people to do those kinds of things for me, I had no idea how to do it for myself, which meant I couldn't put it back on my phone after Marley removed it. I was told I could return to work within a few days, but with the insistence of Marley, Suzanne, and an easily swayed cardiologist, I was finally forced to take some paid time off. I quickly remembered how terrible daytime television was, even with cable. Marathons of fabricated pawn shop antics, people digging through old barns for junk, and New Englanders hunting ghosts. Social media stressed me out, so I wandered to the built-in bookcase in my living room and looked for a book. I'd read most of them, books about management, money, and somewhat ironically, how to manage stress. And then I saw it, The Art of the Lumberjack, a book I had since childhood. I took it down, and for probably the 150th time in my life, I read the inscription on the inside cover. To Eric Victor Nilsson, from his father on January 11th, 1975. Someday if you have the time, read this book, son. I just never had the time. I always knew how, and I didn't need this book. Look for the signs along the way, son. Always be careful, and try not to get hurt. Over the years, I thumbed through the book. I looked at the black and white photos of lumberjacks doing their lumberjacking, and I read bits and pieces about properly caring for axes and how to cook meals for an entire camp of hungry men. But I never took my father's advice and read the book from cover to cover. Why read a book I'd never use? I figured if there was any time I was going to read it, it was then, while recuperating. When one's choices for entertainment is watching a guy on the History Channel with wild hair equate every breakthrough in civilization to aliens, or reading how to cut down trees, Lumberjacks won. The book was boring. There's no nice way to say it other than to just say it. There was no way I was reading it in a sitting. I wasn't sure I'd finish it in several sittings. I needed a reason to keep reading, so I came up with an idea. I was never in what people would consider poor health, at least visually. Because I was always in a hurry, skipping meals was not uncommon for me. Granted, when I finally did eat, it was all fast food and takeout. This is all a roundabout way of saying that while I never came even vaguely close to a state of morbid obesity, I could have definitely afforded to lose a few pounds and treat my body better. When I had the okay from my doctor to exercise, my rehabilitation began with that book in the hickory tree in my backyard. The tree stood tall, smack dab in the middle of everything, away from the other trees flanking the space, as though it were placed there by an angry landscaper or Mother Nature as a joke. Every time I thought about putting in a pool, extending my deck, or really doing anything nice with the backyard, I thought about what a hassle it would be to remove that hickory tree. The art of the lumberjack gave me the confidence to finally claim my backyard. I did everything the book told me to do. I looked up at the branches, but there were no widowmakers waiting to fall on me and end my life. Still, even a small branch falling from high up could ruin a day, but I was in the clear. I noted my escape route in case I needed to clear the area quickly, and then I picked up my axe. I chopped a face cut a third of the way through the trunk and then worked at a felling cut on the other side, just a bit higher than the first. 
A couple clean hits back on the first side, and I heard the tiny crackles become louder. I ran with glee. When I was finally clear of the area, I turned back just in time to see the hickory tree break free from its foundation and fall exactly where I planned. It was more of a rush than landing a new account at work. The following days were spent chopping and cutting rounds from the tree that would be reduced to firewood. I'll never forget the feeling of placing the first round on the stump of the hickory tree and coming down with the maul. My first attempts were sloppy. It took several hits to cleave the log, but I remembered what the book said. Velocity and precision are vital. I committed to my swings and watched piece after piece split from the rounds placed on the stump. The satisfaction of that resounding thunk as the split occurred and the sound of reduced wood falling to small piles on either side of the stump became a cadence I heard in my head at night before sleep. In time, the old hickory was reduced to two cords of wood and set in the sun to dry, a stacked reminder of the benefits of hard work. Ah, work. Work was the furthest thing from my mind. In fact, I actually used up all my vacation time, carrying me well into fall. One evening, by the warmth of a fire fueled by my backyard efforts, I decided I'd finally sit down and read The Art of the Lumberjack in its entirety. That's when I discovered why reading the book was so important to my father. After reducing the hickory tree in my backyard to nothing, each page became a potential workout in my mind. Climbing, cutting, and chopping would turn my body into something sitting at a desk all day could never do. Ah, how my mind emptied when working on the tree, and how great that felt after decades of filling my head with figures and schedules that ultimately didn't matter to me. I only pretended they did because that's what I was raised to do. It was dark and the fire in the fireplace was dying when I came across the page that changed everything. Eric. I don't know what your mother has said about me, but I have to imagine none of it is true. What the hell? I wondered for a moment if I'd started to doze off, or if my mind had simply wandered and I imagined it. I closed my eyes tight, and when I opened them, I read the line again. Eric, I don't know what your mother has said about me, but I have to imagine none of it is true. I looked closely at the page and realized it was glued in perfectly to match up with the others, down to its weight and texture. The typeface was an almost perfect match as well. The care that went into inserting the page held up even when I turned on the lamp beside my chair. I continued reading. There are things a person knows are on the way, and I knew your mother was going to divorce me. I can't blame the job she took last year because change comes from within. But almost overnight, she went from being one of the most caring people I've ever known into something so cold, it was like we'd never met. I don't know what the future holds for you, son, but I hope that you're able to find a job you like, not a job that changes you, unless it's a change for the better. Sadly, that has not been the case with your mother. I couldn't imagine my mother being even vaguely caring, let alone one of the most caring people someone would ever know. She rarely spoke and seemed to rule the world with her glare. I don't know why your mother came to resent me the way she has. She's been cutting everybody close to her from her life and thrown herself into her work. I've tried getting her help, from family, from professionals, but with each attempt she's pushed back even more. 
Strangely, she's not pushed you away, but at the same time, she has very little to do with you. It's like she sees something within you to shape. You serve a purpose in her life, but little more than whatever it is she wants. At first, she offered me money. Hefty sums to just leave you and her and not look back. There was no way I was going to do that. Then one night, the police arrived at the door. Your mother appeared with you. You had a split lip. She had a black eye. She told the police I hit you both. Please know that I would never lay a hand on you, son. I have never been a violent man, but seeing you standing there with a lip sticky with blood, I wanted to hurt your mother. I don't really remember my father, but I remember the police coming to the house. My mom was reading to me, and the book didn't slip from her hand. The bitch! I continued reading. The drama of that night was followed by a restraining order and then a divorce. I was left with nothing, not even visitation rights. I'd be lying if I said I didn't think about stealing you away from it all, but your mother could provide you a better life, at least at that time. So I've added this bit to the book in the hope that you'd read it, figure out its secrets, and come to me one day. The map below will lead you to a box I buried beneath a tree. The key to open that box is hidden in the spine of this book. I love you, son, and I look forward to seeing you one day. I looked at the map on that page so many times over the years, admiring the effort that went into it. I once asked my mother what my father did before he killed himself. She told me he was a draftsman and a dreamer who strummed a guitar and talked about wanting to write. To sit there realizing the whole time that this was inside the book and that my father wasn't dead? I wanted to show up at my mother's door and... Do what? On some level, I wanted to find a way to destroy her, to topple her tiny kingdom, and when asked why, tell her how terrible she was for taking so much away from so many people. The rage I felt manifested in tears, though. My father was alive. The whole time, he was alive. Then I got mad at him. I mean, I get maybe leaving at the time, but over the years, he could have come back. What the hell kind of parents made me, I wondered. When I was done seething, I took the dust jacket off the book and ran my fingers along its spine. I felt the key tucked between it and the block of pages. I got up, grabbed a pair of needle-nose pliers, and carefully extracted the key from the book. Then I sat back down in my chair, turned off the light, and watched the embers in my fireplace fade to black. I thought about calling my mother first thing in the morning, but I could imagine the conversation. I told you he killed himself. And then when confronted, it was for your own good. I could bring up her hitting me in the face with a book when I was four and mention the heart attack, but she'd not care. Whatever switch clicked deep within her turned off so much decades ago. So I grabbed a cup of coffee before heading to the garage for a trowel. The coordinates on the map brought me to a forest preserve I loved as a kid. It was down the street and across a field from the first house I lived in. I spent all my free time there, splashing through creeks, climbing trees, and reading novels beneath their canopies. The map brought me to my favorite tree, 
a huge oak beside a small pond at the back of the preserve. I couldn't believe that for all the times I read books beneath that tree, whatever my father left for me was right there beneath my ass the whole time. I wanted to kick myself for not thoroughly reading The Art of the Lumberjack when I was younger, or at least for not realizing the map pinpointed a place I frequented. Using the trowel, I dug where the map told me to dig, but I found nothing. I widened the hole and eventually hit the side of something. With a little effort, I uncovered a small metal cash box wrapped tightly in several plastic garbage bags. The key from the spine of the book fit the lock. Inside was a small notebook and a thousand dollars in cash. There was my father's handwriting, just like the inscription in The Art of the Lumberjack. I wouldn't say his writing was feminine, but there was definitely a certain quality of care in the loops and flourishes with each word. It was the kind of handwriting we'd turn into a font today. It had been years since I sat beneath that old oak tree and read something. I took a sip of coffee and got to work reading. January 25th, 1975 Son, I hope this finds you well. There's so much I want to write about the past couple weeks, and even what happened leading up to the day I was served papers saying I could no longer see you or your mother. There aren't enough pages to say all I want to say, so I hope you're old enough to use this money and come to where I live. There's a map on the next page to guide you. As best as I could tell, the map led to a cabin in the north woods of Wisconsin, way out in the middle of nowhere. But on the facing page was another entry in map. May 27th, 1978. Son, I'm moving on. I've added a bit more money in the hope that one day you'll be able to make it. He had moved to the East Coast, somewhere in the middle of nowhere, Vermont this time. Turning the page, I read the final entry in the notebook. June 13th, 1987. Son, I found a place I don't see ever leaving. I've dropped in a bit more money because I know it's a ways from home and that a dollar no longer goes as far as it once did. I can think of no better thing in the world than meeting you in person. P.S. If somebody else finds this, I understand if you take the money, but I'd hope you'd send this notebook to my son, Eric Nilsson, at 1422 Dunlear. I looked at the map accompanying the last entry. My father was in Maine. It hit me that as often as I visited the forest preserve, that I may have missed my father returning to update the notebook by hours, maybe even minutes. I'm sure he came back at off hours, but it wasn't uncommon, especially in my teens, to go and sit beneath the tree in the middle of the night, wondering about life and the father I never knew. I went home and booked a flight to Bangor, Maine. Somewhere about a half hour north of Pine Knoll, the already small road turned into dirt. I maneuvered the rental car along the way, happy that it wasn't raining. You forget how dense a stand of trees can be, and while I had only taken down a hickory in the safety of my backyard, I could only imagine how difficult it must have been for even the hardest men to ply a trade up here in the middle of nowhere. I came upon an abandoned lumber camp, and as I stepped out of the car, my imagination got the best of me. I envisioned a horde of zombie lumberjacks staggering from the dilapidated buildings to consume me. That or bears, 
just boom, eaten by bears and never heard from again. The camp was so old that I'd not have been surprised to find the skeletal remains of lumberjacks taken by disease, or worse, some madness in which I found nothing but cleaved skulls and broken axes. While I wasn't totally convinced that being mauled by a bear was beyond the realm of possibility, I knew that nothing bad was going to happen to me. That is, until I heard the creak. The sound of a nail moving through an old plank of wood from the weight of a foot left me feeling like prey caught out in the open. A massive man emerged from one of the better cared for buildings. He seemed seven feet tall and easily as wide as my rental car. He could have probably carried my rental on his mighty shoulders, the weight of it all supported by a waist as wide as a stout tree. The man before me was the epitome of a lumberjack, complete with black and red flannel shirt, suspenders, jeans, boots, and knit hat. Each time he exhaled, a cloud of vapor obscured his face, but not his thick black beard. That's when I noticed the axe in one of his hands. I wanted to turn and run, but he had my eyes. Or rather, I had his. Dad? A tear rolled down my father's cheek and was swallowed by his beard. He stepped forward, and I was embraced by a sobbing mountain. He stepped back and said, I'm sorry. It's just... I know, I said. I felt a tear roll across my cheek and all the way down to my throat, eventually swallowed by the neckline of my shirt. My father insisted I give him my life story in an afternoon. After that, we traded questions into the evening. This was my big one. Why did you leave everything in a book about lumberjacks? My father said, I knew if I left a note or even mailed something to you that your mother would have found it and thrown it away. I figured a young boy looks at a bookcase full of biographies and novels and they all look like boring books that adults read. But a book about how to be a lumberjack? That's a book that a boy will pull down from a shelf. I wanted to tell him that had I read the book in its entirety when I was young and found what he had left inside for me, I wouldn't have been able to make the cross-country trip, but that was now a what-if in the past and no longer mattered. I still wondered one thing, though. Why didn't you ever just come back? It wasn't my place to return out of the blue and interrupt your life. I thought about it every damn day, but it wouldn't have been fair to you at a certain point. You with your life moving forward and then me stepping in and expecting everything to be alright. I wouldn't begrudge you for resenting me then, or even now. I don't, and I never really did. If anything, I'm more mad at mom, but even there, I pity her. She's such a broken person. My father smiled. I always knew you'd grow up to be a good person. I spent a week in the woods of Maine, getting to know the father I thought was dead since a time before my memories started. Much of our time together was spent in shared silence, as if we'd never had a gap of 43 years apart and were content just sharing space. Then, out of nowhere, one of us would speak. You know what the last movie I ever saw was, son? Nope. Return of the Jedi. Somewhere along the way I mentioned the heart attack. I'm not saying my way of living is the right way to live, but it's more in line with what we've always done as a species. I never understood working in an office. 
I'm not so stubborn to believe that just because I see things a certain way that I'm right, but a body is meant to be moved, and a mind is meant to have time to rest and think about possibilities. I felt a little defensive at the thought of what I dedicated my life to for a couple decades wasn't real in my father's eyes, but I'd be lying if I said I didn't agree with him on some level. I took more pleasure in felling a tree in an afternoon and reducing it to firewood in the days that followed than in all my years of keeping cubicles and offices warm. I told him about the hickory tree. I get that. A lot of trees up here to take down. A lot of things to tend to, but there's still time for other things. Let me show you something. He led me into his cabin and then to a bookcase. He pointed to a row of black journals. Each one of those is a novel I wrote, twelve so far, put together on yellow notepads, and when reworked to the point of being done, copied by hand into something more permanent. He handed one to me. I opened it. There, in his perfect handwriting, was a title page reading, With Might and Main, a novel by Anders Nilsson. I know it's a bit of a middle-aged dream to step away from your career and settle into something slower. Opening a bed and breakfast, taking up art, or writing novels. Most of us never do it, though. And here, my father had a dozen books sitting on a shelf in a cabin in the middle of the woods in the center of nowhere. The purity in that act, in everything about his life, made me think about what I'd made in my years at the office. I didn't have much to show for it all, even though I know I affected the lives of those around me in some manner. As best as I could always tell, no one hated me beyond a feeling that because I worked all the time, they felt they were expected to work all the time too. Out of all the overworked directors and managers at work, I was deemed the best simply because I wasn't as bad as the others. But I had no equivalent of my father's bookcase. I spent the rest of the week in Maine thinking about how to remedy that. When I left to return to work, my father hugged me and said, You're always welcome here, son, for a visit or forever. Up to you. There is a section in The Art of the Lumberjack about how once it gets into you, there's no letting go. How time spent in a camp makes returning to civilization difficult for many. After a time, the only place of comfort is deep in the woods. I won't pretend my week in the old logging camp my father bought in the late 80s was even remotely akin to working in a camp back in the day, but I couldn't shake off the experience. It wasn't just about finally meeting my father. It was as much about the place finding its way into me. I started putting in 40-hour weeks at work, instead of the usual 60, 80, or even 100 plus, and encouraged people to use their allotted time off. I let people leave work early and roll in whenever they felt like it. I did the same. I grew a beard. One day Suzanne Jennings from HR stopped by my desk. Can we talk, she said. About what? About how you've changed. She pointed to a conference room, but I told her I was fine talking at my cubicle where the conversation could be heard by all. That's what they get for pushing an open office plan. All right. Is everything okay? Never better, I said. It's just that others have noticed your new habits seem to be rubbing off on your groups. I knew this would eventually become an issue. I pulled out a spreadsheet I had printed. If you look here, my groups have never been more productive. They work and they live their lives. They're happy. 
These numbers don't lie. Suzanne paused for a moment. I could tell she was impressed. But still, she said, It's not so much about that. It's about unity. We can't have... She lowered her voice. We can't have a director that isn't like all the other directors and managers. I wanted to shout out about how that was the problem, how I had proof the teams below me did better than ever, but how image matters more than results. Or rather, that I was making others look bad, and they didn't like that. Instead of making a scene, though, I thought about my father's parting words. You're always welcome here, son. For a visit or forever. Up to you. I placed my access badge on my desk. Everything I have belonging to the company is right here, Suzanne. I'm sorry, but I can't do this anymore. My father was not surprised to see me return. That's one hell of a beard, he said. I smiled. It's genetic. In the months that followed, my body became a machine. I'd never be as massive as my father, but every muscle worked together. There was nothing asked of me that I couldn't do. The occasional urge to track things on spreadsheets or create product roadmaps bubbled up now and then. In the back of my mind, I thought about releasing a video fitness series, The Lumberjack Workout, just to have a product to plan and track. I thought about restoring the old camp into a living lumberjack museum I could run. At the very least, we could make artisanal maple syrup. But even those fleeting urges stopped one day when the clouds of winter broke and sunlight chased away the final mounds of snow hidden in the shadows. Green shoots forced their way up through soil and branch. Soon, life would begin again. A big thank you for listening to Not About Lumberjacks. Theme music by Ergo Fismas. All other music by Broke for Free, released under a Creative Commons license. Not About Lumberjacks is also released under a Creative Commons license. Visit nolumberjacks.com for information about the show, the voice talent, and the music. Next month, a professional wrestler can't remember who he is after hitting his head against the ring post during a match. Until next time, be mighty and keep your axes sharp.